Not the size of the screen as much as the people with you. And that's a whole important thing. It's, it's a community. And I think cult films bring a community of people together that have like interests. That's good for the trailer. Tonight on the DTD Podcast, we have documentary filmmaker Bill Fulkerson. He's a New England creative of a different breed. He hosts and produces the weekly podcast Outside the Cinema. It's a humorous and well-informed show that has dissected cult cinema for over 13 years now. 650 episodes in and counting and he's been able to showcase his knowledge in various documentaries and podcasts survival of the film freaks it's bill's first venture to the other side of the camera he opted to write and direct a documentary to ask answer the question that we're going to talk about tonight where is cult cinema in the aids of technology so let's get into it are you not entertained are you not entertained is this not why you were here? How about new, no, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. I don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. I'm excited about this one tonight. I've been listening to this guy for a long time, and he's introduced me into quite a few strange yet entertaining films. He hosts Outside the Cinema Podcast, and now he's a documentary filmmaker with another film on the way. So let's get into it. Bill, thanks, and welcome to the show. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to to be here and talk about my favorite subjects is a film. We're not going to talk about hockey tonight. So uh, yeah, I know. So let's get into this. So you make this documentary. Now we've had a couple documentary filmmakers on here and a couple that have made films, uh, more of the nostalgic flair to them. And I got that really big off of yours too, was that big nostalgic flair when I was a kid and the video store and, and, and we'll get into the video stores of when I was a kid, because as we learned when I was with Taylor Morton, it wasn't even a video store. It was a gas station that rented out VHS tapes. So I want to talk about what your film focuses on and that's cult cinema. Now that's a very broad net that casts out. Uh, when we talk about film, it, it encompasses a lot of sure. things. And I think what people think when they, first go into cult cinema is they think like Rocky Horror Picture Show or, you know, these exploitation films or whatever. And, and I think even that term throws things off. So in your eyes, it's a little different. Cult cinema, I think, is more of a nostalgic thing or more of a memory-laden movie than necessarily a cult film status. So what is your definition of cult cinema? You know, we asked we asked that same question to pretty much everyone we interviewed for the movie and we didn't really necessarily get the same answer twice. And even my like thought process on what cult films is is different. I just I look at it as any any movie that people 
will gravitate towards in a group setting or a setting of like, you know, a specific reason why they're getting into that movie. And like anything can be a cult movie. In in my opinion, it doesn't have to be a horror movie. It doesn't have to be an exploitation movie. It can, you know, we, we talked a bit about star Wars and how star Wars is the biggest cult movie of all time because it has just this fervent, like fervent. Is that right? Is that even a word? Anyway, uh, we'll say feverish, it. feverish, fervent. I like fervent though. Okay. Let's go with fervent. Then I'll, I'll go with that. Fervent. Uh, but like has this like, fervent following of fans that you know want to know everything about it and i think that's that's at the heart of it that's what cult film and cult comic books and cult tv shows and all of that stuff's the same it's just something that really garners a group of people to have a passionate following for it yeah i i think the same thing and i think cult cinema like like i said uh and you said it's not just necessarily these b movies that we think about although those are at the forefront of the cult cinema kind of area. Oh, but, for sure. For sure. But, but you look at films like I would even consider like the Goonies and things like that cult cinema because they have such a strong following behind them. I mean, uh, even the Sandlot or, or, you know, movies like that, that have, I think you could even take it so far as to say like Shawshank Redemption as serious yeah. a movie as it is. It has a cult following. I hear people say all the time, Man, if that's on TV when I'm flipping through, I've got to stop and watch it. Me, yep. I don't understand the big deal about it. I'm not a huge fan of it. I tell people that all the time. But uh, do you agree that I think that's the way it goes, whether it's a $100 million movie or a $100,000 movie? Yeah, it's. I don't think it makes a difference. I think depending on who you talk to, people will use the word cult in different you know connotations and different meanings like for some people, when you say cult, that's a genre to them. Right. Whereas I look at cult film as anything can fall under that, yeah. like that banner, if you will, you know, um, it's the type of thing where if it's a drama, if it's a, a romance, if it's a horror movie, if it's just a bizarre art house movie, it, you know, it can be cult. But I think you also have to kind of temper, you know, your expectations when you discuss films with people in terms of what their idea is of what can be considered a cult film. Like my wife, for example, is not really into, you know, weird movies or like, I mean, I watched the most bizarre shit that's yes. out there. Yes. You, you know, do. the most violent, there's with the ongoing joke where he's like, what are you watching for the show this week? And I'll say whatever movie it is. And she'll be like, how rapey is it? Because every Italian movie, it seems like that we watch from like the seventies, is just littered with like women being treated terribly. <laughs> so yeah. like, that to me is that's in the cult umbrella. But for someone like her that doesn't follow that stuff, any, you know, mainstream horror movie can fall into that category. So I think it's really about, you know, understanding your audience and who you're preaching to. Like when we made survival, we knew that we were going pretty, pretty niche for who our, our, our audience was going to be. And, you know, it was more a passion project than trying to get it out there to the masses. If we felt if we could educate a bit on the way, that would be great. But, you know, we knew, where where you know where our sweet spot was going to lie with people so i feel like it's the same way when you're talking about movies with people is you have to kind of get an idea like you start with a broader question before you jump right into your oh well how do you feel about nazi exploitation films from the mid 70s like you have to kind of like meter that to figure if you can go that way or if you're going to stick with like friday the 13th or nightmare on elm street 
Yeah, and and I, I think that's a big point to it is because I'm not into a lot of the stuff that the people would consider like hardcore cult films or anything like that. I'm not into those, but I am into a lot of very crazy ones. Like uh, I, I've talked about it on the show and on a couple other people's shows. I'm a huge fan of Chopping Mall from the 80s. I'm a huge fan of Death Spa. Uh, yeah, Death Spa. You know, there's there's a lot of them, and they're 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 more campy than anything. Uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. You look at like the Andy Sedaris films and stuff. I'm not into the really weird. I I kind of classify them as the Rob Zombie uh, era because he talks about those a lot, like uh, Ilsa She Wolf of the whatever, or you know, just the crazy ones that he kind of models his films after House of a Thousand Corpses, all that different kind of stuff. Um, but I think that there is what is great about this genre is there is a place for everyone in it. And when you say that you niched out, you know, for this film, I think though people can get a look at your film and say, wow, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know fell into that. And I didn't know that I liked that kind of film. Yeah, we, I think, you know, almost by accident, we just kind of, cause we went, we went with our nostalgia feel. We, you know, Kyle that I made the film with who, uh, you know, co-directed it with me and we, we did everything, you know, down the middle in terms of like co-writing, co-write, co-directing, co-producing, you know, he shot a bunch of it. I shot a bunch of it. And, you know, we kind of, and Kyle's a little bit younger than me. He's about, you know, he's about 10 years or so younger. They're actually more than that, more like 12 or 13 years younger than me. Uh, probably more than that, but we'll just say it. we'll stop at 12. So I don't sound like a, like an old man, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, we really kind of just, dug our heels in with our nostalgia and knowing that like even if you're not into some of that type of films you're always kind of curious as to what's out there whether you're going to want to watch more than the trailer you know that's a different story but we found that the film then connected with people just on like you'd mentioned earlier on that nostalgia level and yeah. was not necessarily something we expected because it was just kind of like i want to make this documentary i uh i've got all this cult film knowledge from the last you know dozen or so well, at the time it was like you know eight or nine years of otc you know let's let's try to make this documentary and just kind of like get out there and you know give our give our voice to the argument because it's not like we're the first people that ever made a documentary about cult films there's been a glut of them the last few years and we knew we were we were diving into a a pool that already had a bunch of people in it but we wanted to give our film something that those others didn't have we felt we did that you know it was um kind of a happy accident the way that it turned out but it ended up working out pretty good for us so far so what was it as a kid that that got you set because like you said you're more of uh you you for your podcast you watch some really strange films and stuff what was it about your childhood or what got you into these films as a kid i mean i i started like a lot of other kids with you know weird stuff on the shelf of the video store box art was a big thing for me uh but my dad so my when i was probably i don't know maybe like seven or eight my dad bought two vcrs and like those old school big vcrs that were like the big boxes that were like this tall and like this wide them and he bought what he called dubbing cables uh and so he started to record virtually every film that we would rent so we would rent go to whatever, you know, whatever we would bring home and he would just make a copy of them. And a lot of times the copies were garbage because that was when they had, uh, what was it called? Cineview or some, some type of anti copying, right? Uh, not even software, just like built into the tape. So when you would make a copy of it, the screen would go from really light 
to like really, really dark. And then it would get really, really light again. But he didn't care. He was just like, oh, well, you know, if I'm paying the money to rent this and I want to keep a copy of it, I'm going to do that. And I'm like, hey, more power to you. So for me, it really started with, of all films, it was Friday the 13th Part 4. Uh, wow, that's pretty far was, into the series. Well, yeah. And I was that was probably, I don't remember what year that was, what, 86 or so, maybe? Yeah. 85, 86? Yeah. Um, but I was probably... So I was like eight or nine years old. Uh, so he made a tape that had, if I remember correctly, it was uh, three films on the tape. And it was like Police Academy was the first movie. The second movie was Porky's 2 the next day. And the third film on the tape was Friday the 13th Part 4. So I saw the last five minutes of Porky's 2 The Revenge or whatever the Porky's two was. It was the revenge or the next day. Porky's two the next, the next day. day. I saw the last the last like the last like five minutes of that because I was obsessed with the hockey mask and Jason when I was like eight or nine years old or however old I was at the time. Uh so I watched Friday the thirteenth part four a whole bunch of times. Right. And that was kind of like I want, you know, I want to watch more horror movies. And then we had one we had a tape that had Nightmare on Elm Street three on it, Dream Warriors. So I watched Dream Warriors a lot. Uh, but one of the other ones that I watched early on that kind of pushed me even further was David Lynch's Dune, which even if you watch it now, is just is just a is is like a fever dream of a of a film because it was made with a pretty decent amount of money. And it's like you look at it now and you're like, how did who decided to give David Lynch all this money to make this movie? And it's I love it. I mean, it's a mess, but like there was something weird and different about that movie that I had never seen before. And I was super interested about like, kind of like, and I was like, I don't eight or nine, 10 years old or whatever, but there was like a perversity about that movie that like, just like, I don't want to like, like say like it lit a fire in me, but it made me so much more curious about what is going on. And then, you know, that leads to stuff like, you know, like RoboCop and like, you know, nine-year-old kids should never watch the unrated director's cut of RoboCop. But Sure yeah. enough, I did. And my parents didn't, they didn't really, it wasn't that they didn't care that I was watching the stuff. It was just like, I just did it. And it was just like, well, you know, he's not bothering anybody. So I would watch, it's probably amazing that I didn't turn out to be like a serial killer or something with some of the stuff I well, watched at such a young this age. This would probably be a way different conversation. Yeah, it would be. Uh, and I would not be sitting in my house. I'd be sitting in the big house. Right. Uh, uh, but no, it just really like, it was like this, all these old videos and these tape, my dad made these tapes. And then when I got old enough, I went to gold star video, which was the video store in our town. There was a couple of them. Um, what gold star had a better selection of horror movies than rally home videos. I, I, I'm Massachusetts born and bred. I've lived here my whole life. Um, God willing, I'll get out of here at some point and see and live somewhere else. But, um, so I would ride my bike down and they would do like dollar Tuesdays or like, and we'd have half days of school and we'd rent like three or four horror movies and we'd ride our bikes down and we'd stop at the McDonald's in town on the way back and come home and then just sit in my basement and watch horror movies. And I discovered so many movies that I had no business watching. Like I spit on your grave was one that always sticks out in my head that like, we were like, yeah, this cover of this movie, it's got this like half naked girl on and she's got a knife. This is going to be sick. And then we watched it and it really and we is were sick. like, yeah, but not the sick that we were thinking it was going right. to be. It was just like, oh, man, I feel really bad about like yeah. watching that. But that also started to give me an appreciation for that stuff early on because I look, I mean, like, yeah, 
it's a reprehensible piece of work, but there's art that goes into that. And there's an idea that like, there's a story being told here that's more than just violence and rape. And like, there's, you know, the revenge side of it and people are getting their comeuppance and it really illustrates the point of like, uh, if you do something terrible, there's a really good chance you're going to pay, you're going to pay for it. So like, I started to look at that stuff early on and I think that's really kind of where my love came from. Yeah. And, but, but even when you talk about a film like that, and that is, uh, um, it's considered a very, uh, disgusting film and, and rightfully so they remade it Yeah, with three sequels and a prequel, yeah, yeah. Uh, three sequels and then a direct sequel to the original. Right. And so you look at it and you think, okay, well, what was it about it? Because for so long, and you look at people like uh, Wes Craven and all these people that have made these very tame, like, I mean, Wes Craven, Scream, uh, Scream is huge. They're making Scream 5 right now. Um, but but he starts with Last House on the Left and, and all these these things that people don't think about where these people started from. And that's kind of where I was leading with this was that, you know, James Gunn, and I told you before that I wanted to talk about this guy. I mean, he started on the toxic Avenger, which I mean, if you're looking for a, a ridiculous movie, I, I don't think they get much more ridiculous than it. Um, other than maybe poultry geist or something like that, but you look anything at under the trauma under that trauma umbrella is in that, is in that wheelhouse. Yeah, absolutely. But, but even if you look at toxic Avenger one, it became a cartoon. It was a, like a Saturday morning cartoon. You look at Toxic James Gunn. You look at James Gunn who directed it. Now he's making 200, 300, 400 million dollar movies and has carte blanche in Hollywood. He can tell him what he wants. There's not another director that you can look at right now that has been with the Marvel Universe, made huge things off it, gone over to DC to make Suicide Squad. While he's making Suicide Squad, Marvel begs him to come back and do more stuff over at Marvel. It's unreal the kind of clout that he has. If you look at Jack Nicholson, he got his start with like Russ Meyer and things like that uh, in, in smaller films. There's a lot that has happened in Hollywood or a lot of people that are around these days that came from these films. And they really kind of cut their, their teeth on these films and they're more than just memories for people. They are actual, very groundbreaking in the cinema world. Right. Well, James Gunn, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta make sure we get James Gunn stuff, right? He worked on Tromeo and Juliet. Okay. Uh, not toxic Avenger. If I'm not mistaken, he was a writer on Tromeo and Juliet. And then he also wrote on Sergeant Kabuki man or yeah, one the of the NYPD. Yeah. Uh, he was, but he was very in, intertwined with the trauma people. Uh, cause I know yeah, Boy Coffin, I, I had always heard that he was with him for toxic Avenger and I had heard well, director toxic but... Avengers actually is like, what was it like 1980, like 84, 85. It's actually, it's actually a lot older than people think it is, but I know, I know that James Gunn wrote the screenplay for Tromeo and Juliet, which was Tromeo's version of, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Right. Um, but it's, you're, you know, it's fucking insane. It's batshit insane. Um, but I think people, if you want to really get into James Gunn, choose you go back and you watch Slither, okay. which was his, which was, he directed that and that had Michael, Michael Madsen was in it and uh, a bunch of recognizable people. But like that is, Slither is a, you know, low budget Saturday afternoon type monster movie. And then the idea that this guy, 
they handed him the keys to the Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, films. It, it's it's insane to think about it. And like you said, everybody's like, hey, uh, here, sign sign on with us. We're going to, you know, we want you to do this series. We want you to do that series. And the fact, too, that his entire crew and cast when Marvel fired him for old tweets. And I'm not a, I'm not a big one for cancel culture, but like, I feel like he, everyone, we've all said stuff in the past that we would regret at some point. Right. So the fact that like Disney was basically just like, well, you know, we're going to let you go. And then every, everyone was just like, well, we're not going to, we're not going to work on the movie until you bring him back. Right. It says a lot yeah. about his character, but I think those movies, like, especially when you look at the first, especially the first guardians of the galaxy, what makes that movie feel the way it does is James Gunn direction because he's coming from this Saturday afternoon matinee creature feature sci-fi feel. And that movie is just when you boil it down, it's a creature feature with just like a lot of fucking money and a lot of special effects put into it. Yeah. I mean, and, and to bring that up, I mean, Lloyd Kaufman's in it. He's in the prison scene. I mean, that's, That's the loyalty that he kept there. And if you look around at all of the the films that, or I shouldn't say the films, the actors that he's brought in, he uses, of course, his brother. But, I mean, he's worked with, like, some of the biggest names. When, when you talk about um, everything that he's done, the people that he had in it, the people that are big in Hollywood right now, it, it's unbelievable that he comes from this, I guess you would say, pedigree of of quote unquote bad films and uh, was never really respected until, you know, the MCU blew up. Yep. And the thing is the guys behind the MCU, you know, that, I mean, there's a bunch of them, but like they understand what makes films fun. And that really kind of reads through the fact of the whole like universe itself. There's all the callbacks and like you go, even you look at like, stuff like the Ant-Man movie, those, those all feel like these like 1980s style, like action films in a lot of ways where they're over the top and they're crazy. They don't look bad because of the money that's put into them. But when you boil it down, it's all the same stories, which is why I feel like you don't have the amount of people that feel that way about the DC movies is because they're so worried about, well, the dark Knight was really, was like this dark brooding masterpiece and what Christopher Nolan did with these Batman movies. That's the, where we need to go. And you look at what the, the Marvel people did. They, they went the opposite. Whereas like, it was all about feeling good and making you excited to watch these movies. Whereas like, oh, am I going to want to watch a four hour cut of justice league? Like, right. It's like, it's, it becomes work. Whereas I feel like the Marvel films really take from those time periods of when movie making was fun and the the products like you go back and you watch like the rambo movies there and like those early short those mid-80s schwarzenegger movies like yeah like people are getting blown up and they're like these crazy like action things but like they're fun at the end of the day like the good guy gets the girl he saves he saves the the you know the pow's or whatever and like you feel good about it when you leave but like as good as like those Christopher Nolan Batman movies are like the end of the dark Knight, or pretty much the entire dark Knight returns. The third one, it's just a fucking bummer the whole time. And you don't like at any point feel really good about the way things turn out. Right. But in Marvel, like you feel great about the end of all the movies with the exception, obviously of affinity wars, but we, at the end of end game, 
we were, we're pretty psyched about the way it went down and that scene in Endgame where all the heroes come back. That's right. like, that's textbook, textbook movie making. That's, you know, you need that shot. And that's why guys like James Gunn, I feel like always seem to kind of kill that. And why I feel guys like Rob Zombie who pulls from all the stuff that I love, like, yeah, like I love seventies exploitation films and like Italian giallos and like, but that stuff is dark and it's sad. And like, it's tough to really like make an audience feel good. I mean, obviously depending on what type of movie you're trying to go for too. Like it's, I think you got to pull from the right places and I, and I'm not a huge Rob Zombie fan in general. I appreciate what he does, but I feel like he try, he does what he tries to do what Tarantino does, but he just doesn't put his things together as well. Well, so let's talk about that for a minute, Um, because a lot of people will say that a lot of people have said uh, things about Rob Zombie, like that he messed up the Halloween franchise, which I don't think he really did, because if you look, I mean, it's doing just fine and it's getting ready to release another film uh, that was taken over. Can you really I mean, when you think about it, can you really mess up something like that? It's kind of his vision of it. But a lot of people have said that, hey, Rob, stick to making music. Don't. we don't want you to to make films anymore. And I, I feel like you can look at a film of his like House of a Thousand Corpses, okay? And when it yep. starts, he had the backing of Universal. That's when he was doing Hollywood Horror Nights and all that kind of stuff. And he was designing the sets and all those kind of things, right? So you watch the beginning of uh, the House of a Thousand Corpses, and it feels very film. I don't know how to describe it. I always tell people like you can tell it's a movie set and you can tell that the stuff is there. And I love that about films. I thought, you know, that's what I really like is when you can tell that it's a movie because then you can turn your brain off and enjoy it. But after he screens it kind of for the executives and they tell him, what the fuck did you make? Like we can't put our name on this universal camp back something like this. And they pull and he says, well, I'll just use my own money. You definitely can see or at least I can, as that movie progresses along, you see where his money starts coming into it and his full thoughts start coming into it. And it turns into just a mess by the end of it, where it has a very tight storyline, a very tight characterization going through it. And then as he starts to take over it, it becomes just a mess by the end of it. And then you look at people say they love the devil's rejects, but it feels like that mess just continued on through that. And you end up not yeah. wanting to watch it because it's almost gory to be gory. Yeah. There's no point behind um, it. No. And I, I actually, I agree with you hundred percent on that, Dustin. I think house of thousand corpses, the first 40, 45 minutes of that. Absolutely. Super, super tight horror movie. Everything is pulled together. It looks great. You know, you can still see his influences. He's heavily influenced by guys like Dario Argento and Mario Bava with like the lighting and like the mood and the atmosphere. And it's great. And like when you're basically in the like haunted house part of it is kind of like how I look at it. And then it goes underground. It completely falls apart because like all these characters start showing up. There's that doctor guy. And then there's like people in bunny suits and you're just like, what the fuck is happening now? Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of like, all right, well, I understand where universal was coming from because they were probably kind of like, all right. I, I get this. And that movie is really just like, if you watch it, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, he loves the Texas chainsaw massacre. He okay. loves, uh, Suspiria. Yeah. The colors. And then like the story is very, is very Texas chainsaw massacre. You're kind of just like, Oh, well he loves seventies horror. 
nothing wrong with that. You know, there's a, you know, millions of people who love seventies horror, but like, it's just kind of like too much of a mess, at least for me. I know people love that movie, but like, there's just, it just becomes too much of a mess for me. Uh, and you brought up devil's rejects, which is his homage to the seventies revenge movie. And it's got a great look. It's hot. It's dusty. It's dirty. It's violent. You know, he's got the right cast in it. I feel for the most part. Um, and I loved that movie when I first saw it and being like, you know, this, this movie is killer. It's everything I want in an homage to like, you know, the seventies road to road to revenge type movie. But I actually revisited it a few years ago and upon rewatching it, I was just kind of like, this is really hollow. There's nothing here. It's violence for the sake of violence. Why should I care about these three characters? They haven't, you know, they're, you know, I get, yeah, they're awful people and they're off and they're doing terrible things. And you're not, oh, well, they're the bad guys. You're not supposed to care about them. I'm like, yeah, but I don't care about anybody in this movie. So why would I, right? Why would I watch it? Like, there's no, the characterization is non existent. Um, and that even comes to more, more to fruition when he made that the final one, the three from hell that came oh, out oh. the last year, which is just like, bro, stop. <laughs> like, yeah. just give up those characters. Those characters aren't interesting enough to, to, to keep rolling with it. And it's just like, well, let's do this kill scene and we'll set this kill scene up and then they'll do this fucked up thing. And then they'll do this. And it's like, if I don't care about your characters, none of that stuff matters. Yeah. And, and you can look at a film. We can talk about a, a movie that I think is great, like American Psycho, where it is yep. a very tight storyline. Um, and I, I watched a movie uh, about a week or two ago, uh, 10 to Midnight with Charles Bronson. It's mentioned in your oh, documentary. That. that movie is so much. I feel like American Psycho pulled so much from that movie. Just yeah, the look sure. of the killer, the actions of the killer, even the chase scene. Uh, if you think back to American Psycho where he's chasing with the chainsaw and stuff, it it almost is like the the weird dream state of 10 to Midnight. But you look at that and people don't think of Charles Bronson as like an action person. But you watch his characters, and even though it's the same guy in every movie, it's what you just said. You care about the character. You care about why he's on this mission, why he's on this revenge mission. Um, and you don't with, like, the Rob Zombie films at all. And I think that he does them, uh, you know, like you said, you like that the cast that he brought together. I really don't like who he puts together now. I mean, you can't take away from like Sid Haig and stuff like you, you can't take away those guys, but when you put your wife in every single film, who's a horrible actress just to put her yeah, in the film, it's, it's, she's real. Bad. Yeah. And it takes away from the film. And so yeah. you look at all these, you, you know, you talked about the Texas chainsaw massacre. If you look at Texas chainsaw massacre, the first one, very gritty, but not a lot of blood. Not a lot of gore at all. Nope. People think when they think Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's a ton of gore. There's a t there's really yep. not. And then you go to the second one. And I don't know what happened with that one. It's a <laughs> hilarious movie, and it's fun to watch, but it's even more gory than the original. Oh, it's like 10 times more gory. Right. And you can also look at the time period when it came out. It came out, you know, during the slasher craze of the 80s. Right. So, like, they needed to ramp it up to be able to keep up with, with a lot of the other, like, you know, the, the Friday, the 13th and the nightmare in Elm streets and Hellraiser and those films, they were, you know, that was what was hot at that time. So therefore that, that 
version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre that comes out at that time, they're going to lean into that. So you you look at like um, uh, what's the I can't think of the third name uh, Leatherface th- uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre three Leatherface Leatherface yeah came where out the, a couple years like the after sword that. and stone where the chainsaw right yeah it comes up comes out of the what comes up out yeah. of the water with the yeah, chainsaw yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's like more serious because of the t- you look at what's coming out around that time period and they decided to go with a more serious feel for that one because it's i think that might have been even like night early 90s maybe when that one came out uh just different feel so i mean the original yeah. my from what it's worth i think the original texas chance on massacre is one of the finest horror movies ever made because they do so much with so little and it feels so gritty and it looks like a documentary because it's shot on the cheap absolutely you no know, it's dusty it's got everything for the most part everything is shot during the day in the light which now like you I mean, you can't even name a horror movie for the most part that's shot during the day. Um, except at least in the studio system. I mean, a lot of independent ones are just, you know, for right. cost purposes. Um, but like that movie does everything practically too. And like there's no like, you know, it's Gunnar Hansen running around with that a real chainsaw with a chain on it. And like there's this element of danger when you watch it. I don't get that from a lot of movies anymore. There's been some stuff recently now, the last couple of years, I feel that like because independent filmmaking is now so open to everybody. Uh, there's definitely, you start to kind of feel a little bit more danger in some of those films, but in the studio system, it not, I mean, it all just feels so safe in genre film and it's, it's frustrating sometimes. Well, just to kind of wrap up the point, cause we kind of, you know, went back and forth on that, but you know, just to wrap up the point with Rob Zombie, he really tries to reach back and kind of beckon that film that we're talking about but he doesn't seem to be one of the ones that um, can pull it off. And so what I think happens is not only does he hurt films that are trying to do it today, but it hurts films from back then that he's trying to copy because you get someone that looks at it and they're like, that's ridiculous. I would never watch that movie. I would never watch the one that it's based on. And I don't care who made it when you have people that can pull it off Uh, when they remade the evil dead. They say that's one of the best horror films ever made um, yeah. when they talk about the remake of it. Um, and when you look at the original, it's it's dark and stuff, but it's pretty campy. I, you would have to admit it's pretty campy. Oh, for sure. Even, yeah, because, I mean, Evil Dead 1 and then Evil Dead 2 are essentially the same movie, just second one had a bigger budget to it. Right. Um, it's, you know camp and and horror go hand in hand i mean we did on the on the otc we just recorded that's coming up for this week we did the blob remake that came out in 1988 and that's a really good example of reimagining a super campy movie from the 50s in you know a 1988 mindset right. uh, and i feel like rob zombie one of his biggest issues is he can't separate the idea of where he's coming from or like and like where his influences are coming from and where he lives they're two very different places and he just can't seem i think to pull it all together and i think one of the one of the the biggest issues is you know there he has a lot of fanboys that will celebrate and worship whatever he does and that's fine hey that's you know that's people can like whatever they want to like but i think sometimes the fandom that comes along with horror and people will just like regardless of whether it's something good or whether it's bad, if it's by a filmmaker or a director or a writer that they, that they love and support, they get kind of blinded, I think by the name that's attached to it. And it's like, well, 
Absolutely. You know, well, Rob Zombie is such an amazing filmmaker. It's like, well, is he really? Out of all of his movies, I can't think of one of them that I'm 100% on board with. And the last like three or four, I mean, real bad. That 31 that came out, oh. real bad. Uh, Lords real, of and, Salem, is that another one? See, Lords of Salem is the one that's in there that I think, is, although I still didn't really like it, I will give him props for trying something different. Okay. That was very Italian influenced. That was very Argento influenced. That's more like we had mentioned Suspiria earlier, strictly for the lighting, but Lords of Salem is definitely super inspired by Dario Argento's Suspiria. Some of the stuff that Mario Bava did. Uh, and then also some of the Martino stuff, I think. Uh, and I'll give him props for trying to do something different with that. But, you know, in the scheme of his filmography, it's a complete failure because it wasn't the firefly family and it wasn't blood and guts and it wasn't you know uh all this crazy shit going on even his halloween movies like i mean the, the oh. second halloween movie what's the deal with sherry riding around on a horse like the, just that's i'm like i don't understand what why you're doing this right and and that's the whole thing that that i think that we we get at with him is First off, though, I want you to kind of explain because you talk, you and I can talk about it. But when you talk about Argento and stuff, maybe people that are listening that don't know exactly what you mean about that. Um, can you can you kind of describe what you're saying oh, yeah. about? Yeah. So uh, I, I'm a big fan of Italian cinema and specifically Italian genre cinema. So like stuff like Italian horror movies. Uh, there's a subgenre called giallos that were very prevalent in the 70s that were made in Italy that are essentially sort of the precursor to the slasher movie without the like weird like uh like supernatural elements they were mostly really just kind of like murder mysteries that were at the time considered to be like very violent and, and very gory so dario argento is a director an italian director who did a run of movies uh including some giallos and some supernatural horror movies and one of his most famous movies is a movie called suspiria uh which was remade uh last year or the year before uh by I can't remember his name, but Dakota Johnson was the main was the main star in it. Um, and it was like, I think Amazon put it out. Uh, but so Suspiria is the first in his tri in his wit in his witches trilogy that he put out. And it's like super stylized and it's got a lot of like heavy blue lighting and heavy red lighting. And it's very kind of dreamlike and all about atmosphere and a lot of Italian cinema from this time period, especially the horror stuff uh, is all very much living in that in that kind of like dream state. So like Lucio Fulci is another director from the time period. He did a film called uh, House by the Cemetery and The Beyond, which are classic uh, Italian horror films that again, live in this kind of weird, bizarre dream state. Uh, and these guys all have a very heavy influence on directors like Rob Zombie, uh, Tarantino a little bit. Um, but if you start to kind of dig into uh, horror from especially the last, like I'd say the, like the last, you know, five to 10 years has been a lot of stuff that's heavily influenced by Italian cinema, specifically the horror films and the giallos from that time period. So, uh, yeah, Argento is a guy that has made some amazing films, uh, opera, deep red, tenebrae. Uh, he produced demons. Uh, there's like a whole run of them. Uh, but they're just, they, their influences, like their fingerprints are all over a lot of like zombie style of, of filmmaking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and and the whole thing with that, when, when you talk about those kind of films, um, I, I think that once again, we go back to when you say uh, Suspiria, when you bring that up, 
uh, Amazon made it and they, they made a huge deal about it. Now I don't know that it did that great um, because I think they did a theater release and then a home release with Amazon and stuff. And I don't know that it did, you know, that well, but once again, when we talk about these films that people would never think that would be a popular thing, we go back to remaking them and we just kind of keep going back to that. Well, where people will say, I would never watch something like that. Oh, it's on Amazon. I'll watch that. You know, it's yep. made by Amazon and, and they have no idea the history that comes behind it. And now what I love about what I love about seventies films, I really, really love um, like, black exploitation films. I, I absolutely love it. And, and a lot of people sure. don't understand that, but they are, they are very great uh, for storylines across 110th street is great. Uh, the Mac is great. Um, Superfly. You look at those. Now you get into like Superfly two and stuff, but those originals have a very, very good crime story that you see starting to go back to in film today. Yep, and I absolutely sure. love them. I mean, if you look, Eddie Murphy is famous again because he did Dolomite on Netflix. And yeah. everyone says that movie is absolutely horrible. But once again, he's famous from bringing that back into the forefront of people watching it. And then people go to YouTube and people go to the Internet and people buy the Blu-ray. And then companies like Arrow and stuff put it on Blu-ray and, and make a million dollars off it. Can you tell me why you think that is? why we keep going back to this thing where people were like, Oh, those were horrible. Oh wait, I'll watch it. It's got Eddie Murphy in it. I think, I mean, I think for a lot of, a lot of production companies and studio is, is because it's easy. They can just take a product or, you know, a franchise that they know is, you know, got a following whether they consider it's good or not. I don't think, I don't think even factors into their decision-making, I think it's can we get the rights and can we put the name on it? Uh, a perfect example of, you know, like the the remake, the horrors of the remake is we just did our anniversary show last week. and We always do our top our top six and bottom six films that we reviewed from the last year. And my number one for worst films we watched last year was the prom night remake from a couple of years from. Well, actually, actually, probably nine or ten years ago now. But like there was this glut of of remakes of marginal horror movies about 10 years ago and yep. prom night is where is the worst offender and the perfect example of how bad these films are because the original prom night really isn't that great anyway and they remade it and they took anything that was endearing about the original out of it stuck the prom night name on it and we're like oh it's you know a remake of the classic slasher flick and then you watch it and it's not even a slasher flick so I think what it comes down to is they go back to these things because they know there's already a built-in audience for it. And it's not really about, and I can't, this isn't for everything. I think using Promenade as an example, it's uh, a one week box office bump is what that, that movie gets made to be released for dates on the first weekend. It opens knowing that they'll probably do a bunch of money the first weekend it comes out and then it's going to fall off and then disappear and then we'll dump it on dvd and horror fans will buy because horror fans will buy any their idea this is this would be the big movie studio and this is not me saying this horror fans will buy anything so we'll just right. put it out which unfortunately like is, is is a stereotype for a reason like if i mean i've been to a lot of conventions in my life and there's always somebody from some movie that's there that you're like why is this person here it's like the boyfriend from the prom night remake is here signing autographs and it's and they got a line and it's like who wants to meet this guy? Like, like 
That, What's going on here? That actually happened to me in California at my very first convention. I went to a Fangoria weekend of horrors, and it was probably, man, it had to be 20 years ago in Pasadena. Um, and my buddy and I were walking, and we see this super old guy. And we see some people talking to him. He's kind of signing some stuff. And so he's like, hey, you guys want to look at my stuff? And I'm like, who, who are you? And he says, he says, I'm the bartender from The Shining. And I was like, okay. And he was like, $10 and I'll sign something for you. I'm like, he's old. I'll have him sign it. This guy probably needs the money. Yeah. I mean, he's there doing that, but I understand exactly what you mean. Like these people will come out of the woodwork and people will line up to meet them. Yeah. At least he was in for, at least he's that guy. He's from like a famous, like legitimately one of like the best movies ever. Like, not like this is going to sound bad, but like, you know, the black kid from the Friday, the 13th remake is signing autographs. This is a true story charging $30 at the convention that we used to have here in Massachusetts called rock and shock. And it was like the movie had only been out for like six months. Mm-hmm. And like, he actually had on his sign, the black kid from the remake. Like he didn't even put his character name because he didn't, he knew nobody would know, but yet people are getting autographs from him. And it was like, so what do you like? What's your next movie? I remember I, I was, we were talking to him and like, well, you know, he's like, I ah, know I'm probably done with acting. He's like, I actually make enough money doing this. To be able to like, you know, he's like, I work a, like a full time job, but like, I'll do this like, you know, like, like a, you know, like a half dozen conventions a year. And he's like, it's a nice little chunk of change that I put in my pocket. I was like, well, that's exactly why you do it. But I just that's not sure who's, who's clamoring for who's clamoring for an autograph from that guy. You know, it's like, all right, hey, more power to you, man. If you can get out there and make that money, do it. I'm just not going to give it to you. Well, and but that's the whole thing is where he he tells you, yeah, I can make money. I, I can do it. And, and if you look around at these conventions, um, you you see it all the time. And it, sometimes it's sad, though, when you look around and you see some of these people. Um, one of the worst ones I ever saw was, uh, so Batman and Robin were together. This was before Adam West died. And so he had uh, Burt Ward with him. And uh, they're sitting right next to each other at a table. Adam West is charging, like, 80 or $90 Burt Ward's charging 30 right next to it. I mean, they're at the same table and I think what separates the two? I mean, other than he's been a voice actor and stuff like that, really what separates their careers about continuing to work, keeping out, keeping out there in front of people. Yeah, I I would guess so. I mean, but like you said, you go to these conventions and you see it time and time again. So in today's films, what would you consider cult now? Because, like I said, this covers such a huge area. What would you consider a cult film now? I mean, it's tough to. I mean, you got to give it time. Uh, I, I, our show, we don't cover anything normally. I mean, there, there's things that come up, but we won't normally cover something till it's at least ten years old. I think you got to get get away from it, give it a little bit of time to breathe on its own, and figure out whether it's going to really be a cult film. I mean, there's definitely some stuff that's come up, you know in the last 15 years that it is, is going to be there. Like, I feel like Adam, Adam Green's hatchet movies are in that discussion for being cult films, whether you like them or not a moot point, but like, I think they're in there. Uh, I think like machete is something that people are going to really go back and revisit. 
Uh, I even something like Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, I think, is something that in a, a few years, which that's now probably 10 years old, you know, our people are going to go back and be like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is a pretty wacky flick. And then anything that kind of falls, you know, like into the genre stuff can can get there. I mean, there's been a lot of really good horror movies the last 10 years or so stuff like it follows and um, uh, revenge was another one that I remember watching a couple years ago that was killer. Uh, this movie we watched uh, at a couple film festivals a couple years ago. Sadistic Intentions is one that like uh, it, killer movie. It but like it just kind of flew under the radar and didn't really, you know, it got its release got messed up. But I think in a few years it'll end up probably on Shutter or like one of those places and people gonna be like, oh shit, you see this movie Sadistic Intentions? This is great. Starts off as this like romantic comedy type thing and then turns into this like satanic like sacrifice thing. It's it's crazy. Excellent if you haven't seen it, Dustin. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's really hard to tell. I think anything can fall into that for sure. Uh, but I think it's tougher for stuff to get like a bigger cult following now, just because the glut of stuff that we're, we're hit with every moment of every day, every different streaming option that you have. And even just in the, in the five years since we, since we made, we started making survival, like things have changed. And when we were making them, making the documentary, we realized I'm like, we're actually kind of under a time crunch to finish this because the stuff that we're talking about, by the time we get done and get it out, there's going to be something new that's coming. Mm -hmm. And we luckily kind of, we finished and we got it released right when the real like streaming options started to hit. So like, you know, shutter was fairly new at the time. Uh, you know, even, and then now there's like, there's Tubi. uh, I was going to bring all those up. That was actually a question that I was going yeah. to talk about. So we can go right into that. So yeah, when it. when we were kids, you have Cinemax, HBO, Showtime, USA did Up All Night, TNT did Monster Vision, you had Joe Bob Briggs, all those kind of things that helped keep those films alive back then. Uh, and very much so, because I remember watching those as a kid on all those oh, yeah. different things. Um but today we have Amazon is huge for doing stuff like this. I think yeah. they have a gigantic library of these 80s and 70s films that people wouldn't give much attention to. You got Tubi, you got Pluto, you got Stir. Uh, over the air broadcast, you have like uh, MeTV. You have, there's so many things. Svengooli plays every Saturday to kind of keep these things alive. Do you think the more that we have these, Two things I wonder what will happen. Do we crash this or do we make it grow to where we've never seen it before? Because I almost feel like something like this could have an oversaturation. I, I think I, I, I can agree with you on that point that I think there's a point where, but that's going to be falling, I think, more so on the companies kind that are behind it. And like you can kind of see it now, whereas like even just think back, Dustin, like five years ago, we had Netflix and we had Hulu and that was like, really, I mean, those were like, those were like right. the two big ones. Netflix is where you watched your movies and Hulu is where you watched your TV shows. But now there's like dozens and dozens. And I'll just use survival of the film freaks as a, as an example, we released it uh, physically on Blu-ray and DVD. And then we released a collector's VHS and then we put it out digitally. So we put it out to buy on Amazon and we put it out exclusively on Amazon purposely because we're like let's just put it in one place and then we'll you know have it just send people to one thing rather than be like oh well you can get it on apple and you can get it on this and you can get it on that so we did that you know we sold digital copies of it and we sold physical copies of it you know through amazon uh exclusively and then we put it onto amazon prime after it had been out for i think 
I think we did. We waited six months and then we put it to be included in Prime, and the numbers just you know took off from there. But then we had a digital distributor that wanted to put it into other places, and now it's available. And I don't even know whether it helps us or not on like twelve to you know sixteen different streaming services. So it's available on Amazon Prime. It's available on Tubi. It's available on like a bunch of different Roku ones. It's like all these different places that like I never even heard of or know how to get to or like know anything about. Right. So like it's cool that it's out there, but it's almost just kind of like why? Like it does it like why it's just if it's just like sitting in a carousel somewhere. It's like you think about it like when you used to go to the video store, they would sell off the stuff that wasn't renting to get rid of it, get it out of there. And I'm afraid we may get to that point with the amount of stuff that's going into these streaming services where at some point they're going to be like, nobody's watching this. Let's just get rid of it. And then how do you, then how do you see it? We got to have physical. Then. Yeah. If you don't have a physical copy of it or a cop, a digital copy of it on a hard drive, which is why I, I personally am. I, I, I'm not saying that people should illegally download stuff, but like, if you can't get a movie and you can't locate it, and we've done it for the show, for the podcast, you know, a bunch of times is like, someone will be like, Oh, you guys should cover, you know, what X movie. Well, DVDs out of print or it was never released on DVD. There's no Blu-ray available. It's not on any streaming services. Are you saying I can't watch this movie now? Like I can't download a copy of it from some, because somebody had the hindsight to rip their DVD and put it on a server somewhere in case somebody wanted to get a copy of it. So, I love that we have so much stuff available to us, but at the same time, I know myself, if I'm not watching something that I'm reviewing for the show or something that I'm working on for, you know, a video project or whatnot, I, I spend more time scrolling through Tubi or scrolling through Hulu or Netflix or HBO Max or Peacock or uh, Shutter or any of the glut of services that I have that I, I pay for all of them too. And the right. whole idea was, oh, it's going to get you away from cable and you're not going to have to spend nearly much mon enough, as much money. I spend more money now. <laughs> yeah. I have so many services and I don't use any of them. Right. Well, and, and, so. and that's the whole thing. Whenever you talk about going, you don't even, in, in these days, uh, you don't even have to download it from someone's server or anything. You can go to YouTube and find pretty much anything you want to, you know, or Watch get it, it yeah. to, yeah, get it to an area that you can find where you don't have to download it, which is great that these places like YouTube. Now, once again, I wonder what's going to happen when YouTube gets so full of video um, mm -hmm. that they're not able to support it or, you know, it goes back with these though. You look at like Tubi, Pluto, stir, all those ones that I mentioned Tubi, Pluto and stir are all free. You don't pay for yep. those. And they, they have a, a very big following right now, especially Pluto. Yep. When you look at Pluto, when it originally started, it had some crap. Now MTV has joined it. Home and Garden has joined yep. it. The Outdoor Network. I mean, they just made a, which is the greatest thing ever, a 24-hour Price is Right channel. So uh, the, <laughs> and they call it the Bob Barker era. Uh, yep. But you look at all these ways that we can go and how we can consume. I feel that there might not be where it reaches a critical mass. I think that we get to more people than we could ever reach before. I think that it opens up a whole new world in saying that though, opening up a whole new world, Hollywood right now is doing nothing but remakes. 
I mean, they just talked about uh, they're starting Indiana Jones 5 with Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. I worry that with this stuff being out there and everyone being able to grab it and see it, that's all we're going to see from now on is bad remakes because there's not a lot that can really top the original. You're, 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 you're not wrong, but you're also wrong. Okay. If I may say so. No, absolutely. Uh, I agree with you. With, within the Hollywood system, absolutely. They're, they are devoid of a lot of original ideas and continue to go back to the well. But, and I'm a, I'm a perfect example of this, that in this day and age, anybody can make a movie if they want to. The, the means that are put at our ha- in our hands now for equipment and availability and cost is, I mean, anybody can make a movie. You can make a movie on your iPhone if you want to and like and shoot make in it Dolby can't you the new the new iPhone yeah. 12 you, yeah you can shoot in Dolby uh you can you know you have the options for 24 frames a second you have slow motion capabilities you have you know you can buy gimbals you can buy external microphones you can buy light you can you can anybody can make a movie now which is amazing but that's also the problem is that anybody can make a movie now and as a podcaster, I've used that joke a number of times. Podcasting is amazing because anybody can podcast. Yeah. Podcasting sucks because anybody can podcast. Uh, but I feel like there's amazing stuff out there now. There is just amazing stuff. I mean, you just got to look for it. Like you can't count on the Paramounts and the Universals and the Sonys to give you quality content that you're not already exposed to. Like there's so many good horror movies in the last couple of years that like shutter shutter is actually really good for pulling stuff out. If you have local film festivals, like go to your local film festivals. That's where some of the best stuff I've seen in the last five years I've come across it, you know, you know, and I was never a big film festival guy. I would do conventions, but like once our movie started playing film festivals, I started going to film festivals because we would get into them and I would be like, oh, wow. I'm like this. I never even would have heard of this movie. Right. If I hadn't come across it. Uh, And then you wonder like, like short movie, like short films, like we just put out a short and like it played in some festivals and stuff, but like there's no home for that stuff outside of film festivals that like, it's such a bummer because there's so many amazing shorts that get made and especially like horror shorts. There's some, unbelievable horror shorts that are out there but there's no real home for them because nobody's looking for shorts well you know uh i've got a couple friends that i've interviewed and stayed in touch with them so you have like a little mishra from uh he did one br this year that's doing gangbusters all over you have philip carroll and chloe carroll that did um uh the honeymoon phase and then you talk about those shorts. Chloe Carroll actually has a channel on YouTube that's nothing but horror shorts. It's called Fear Crypt. And it has people go there like crazy and, and watch the videos that are on there. You have guys that, that did it over in uh, England with the movie Host. I don't know if you've seen that, but it is a fantastic. Oh, yeah. Host is great. Yes. Yeah, so I, I talked to Richard and all those guys over there, uh, Neil and Adam, all those guys. And they are super excited about where film is at now, because like you said, everyone can make them and you see some real guys that can shine that come out of this. And I, I love it because you see a lot of stuff now that you wouldn't have seen before. I would have never heard of one BR if it wasn't for streaming. I would have never heard a host without streaming a honeymoon phase. And you look at all these things like the honeymoon phases 
excellent when you look at it and it's almost like black mirror and, and it, it, it was shot for a small amount of money and yet looks fantastic. Great storyline, tight writing, same with hosts. Um, I love where cinema has gone. I, I hate to say, but I am almost glad that movie theaters are not doing well. And I'll tell you, yeah, why. I don't miss. Them. Yeah. I don't miss them. And I'll tell you why, because I'm seeing so many more things now with this streaming. I love that HBO Max did the same day in theaters as home with all their new movies because I just watched one the other night that uh, the little things that I'm glad I didn't pay for. It wasn't a bad movie, but I'm glad I didn't go spend 50 bucks to go to the movie and get snacks. Right. And and how like much that. does it go to the movies on the Friday night now? It's insane. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't miss it at all. There are some great independent films coming out now. And I really think I've talked to all these guys that make these independent films. And I really think this is the renaissance of Hollywood. I think this is what's going to make these studios set up and take notice is these scrappy motherfuckers that want to come in and do what they want to do. And you saw it very rarely. You saw it with like Quentin Tarantino. You saw it in here and there and, you know, little dabs of it in Hollywood. And people thought, oh, it's super cool. It's it's with Quentin Tarantino. And you look at, at other guys, and I uh, believe me, I'm taking nothing away from Quentin Tarantino's films. But you look at some other guys that you're like, wow, I wish they would make more stuff. Because they have right, got the sure. eye for it. They have, they have got what it takes. And it's not run by these studios. They are giving people what they want. If you look at fan films, look at Star Wars. You look at fan films on YouTube, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable what people are doing. Oh, for sure. And so... so have you seen um the Never Hike in the Snow, Friday the 13th fan films? Uh, I've heard of them, but I've never seen them. Now, I God, have oh, seen the, the Halloween, uh, Michael Myers and Jason one that they did together. Yeah, watch Never Hike in the Snow. It's uh, there's Never Hike Alone, and then the sequel is Never Hike in the Snow, and it's actually a prequel. Uh, they are better than the remake of Friday the Thirteenth that came out like nine or ten years ago now. Right. Uh, they are better than like Jason Takes Manhattan. They're better than all those. This guy Vincent Desanti uh, is the mind behind them, and he's a he's a friend of mine, and met him through a film festival, and never would have known about his stuff. And now he does Kickstarters to raise money for these fan films and makes like hundreds of, he made like hundreds of thousands of dollars on the like Kickstarters for these, for these movies. Now, I mean, he puts that all right back into the movie right? because it's, it's a, it's a franchise that he can't, he can't make money off it. Right. But he puts all of that money into it to make it the best possible Friday, the 13th movie that he can possibly make. And they are in their killer. Never hike, never hike alone is, is is probably the best Friday the Thirteenth movie that's been made since probably Part Six. It's killer. Uh, it's great stuff. Six is uh, the new Jason Lives. Jason is, lives. is six. Yeah. So here's the thing, though, uh, and and with you, do you feel the same way as me when you when you talk about this guy having a Kickstarter and he takes the money and puts it right back in because he can't make money off the franchise? There's a huge difference to me in a guy that's working for a studio and getting paid $10 million to make this movie and a guy that's just putting his heart and soul into a movie because he wants to see that franchise live. It's a bummer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, if you, it's amazing that he's willing to do it, but it's a bummer. Like somebody should give Vincent, you know, $10 million, which is a drop in a bucket for a universal or who I think new line owns the rights Friday the 13th. 
You can't tell me you couldn't give him even $5 million to make a Friday the 13th movie when you're dumping. I mean, how many actors make more than that just for one role? Well, you you talked about the remake. You're talking about uh, Jared Padlecki that is probably got paid 15, 20 million dollars for that movie. Oh, I don't think he got paid that much. You don't think so? I mean, Supernatural oh, I mean, was pretty I feel, strong. I, feel, I mean, he, I'm sure he probably did. He probably cleared almost a million dollars to be in that, but I don't think he would have made... I don't think the whole budget for that was even over 30. And it didn't do well either. So, no, like, No, it did not. Um, it was just like Prom Night, where it did great opening weekend and then kind of just disappeared after that. So what do you think, Bill, with... Uh with COVID shutting everything down. Uh, I think it sucks. <laughs> what? Uh, well, I, I, don't I don't mean think, in general. I'm talking strictly. Yeah. I'm talking strictly about movies. Where, where do you think we go? Is this, uh, is this premiere at home? Is this where it's at now? Cause I think it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, as a guy that's a filmmaker now that has his current production shut down and has been shut down for almost a year now because of COVID, uh, I feel like film festivals will probably come back in person to a point, which is where my bread and butter is, you know, like my, I want my stuff to play in film festivals. And then I, and then I don't really care if it gets theatrical release, like film freaks did a, did a, uh, a run, uh, for film festivals. And then we had a few couple like different showings. Like we had a couple, uh, we had a, had a, like a, a week run in a theater in LA and a couple other places, but I I'm, much more inclined to be like yeah let's just let's just let people watch it at home stream it at home that's I, that's where people that's where i watch my movies if they watch it and they enjoy it i don't care where they see it it's the type of thing where as you know as a filmmaker i just want people to see my stuff i want people to to be inspired by it and i want people to 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 think about whatever you know it is like you know if you're into cult movies and you watch all the movies and you get inspired to go back and watch uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's movies, or you get inspired to go back and watch Cronenberg stuff, or you start to dig into Italian giallos because you seem interested by it. I don't care where you watched it. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, in the whatever the post COVID normal is going to be, because I don't think there's going to be where I don't think we're ever going back to the way it used to be. But I don't, I'm not worried about it. Good films will get seen, people will find the movies they want to find. They might just have to, you know, do a little bit more digging. Now, let me ask you, though, when you say that, is it because you're new to the industry? Do you think you feel that optimistic because you're new? Because uh, I I just I have this feeling that a lot of it is the way it is because a lot of people are jaded. You know, uh, maybe it's maybe a bit because I'm still pretty new. I mean, we've been doing it now for. Uh, I mean, I'm probably going like, like like five or six years and I've been doing it full time for about two and a half or three or so. Uh, but I, I come from the mindset of I'm a DIY guy. I grew up in the punk rock and hardcore scene. I, you know, I was in bands so I booked shows in people's basements and rented out church halls and VFWs. So I come from a DIY background and that type of filmmaking and that type of mindset is so removed from working in a studio system. And I've never worked in the studio system, but I, I know a lot of people now that do, and it's just a different, it's just a, it's it's not even in the same in the same realm they're miserable some of them some of them are but like there's some people that like 
you know, that's what they know. One of my, one of my buddies, uh, BJ McDonald, who's a camera operator has worked on some of the biggest movies, you know, over the last 20 years, he's worked on, he's a camera operator for Marvel movies. He's worked with the rock a bunch of times. And he's like one of the, like the most sought after steady cam guys in the industry. But when he makes his own stuff, he does it on his own. You know, he makes, you know, he made Slayer videos and basically the record label just gave him the money and was like, all right, figure it out, do your thing. And he likes to do it that way. But you know, when he works as a camera operator, he works in the studio system and the union system and that, because it's just easier because of where he is. Like I live outside of Boston. There isn't, we don't have that here. <laughs> you know, there isn't a system. The system is, I call Kyle and I'm like, Hey, let's do this. And then he calls that person. And then we're like, Hey, can you work for, can you work for free this weekend? <laughs> or like, Hey, we don't have a lot of money, but we can give you, you know, we can give you extra to, to work with us for a day. So it's, it's just, I think it's just different. I, I don't think I could ever really get into that mindset. Cause that's not, that's not in my DNA. That's not the way I was brought up. That wasn't the way that, uh, I learned filmmaking. I've learned, you know, everything I've, I've done on the fly and I don't think I'm ever going to be making stuff that's going to get into that system. Cause I'm, I'm primarily a documentary guy. Like that's, that's kind of where I want right. to live, you know, documentaries and music videos are the things that I've done. So I got, you know, I got two documentaries under my belt with a third in production. And then I've done, you know, a half dozen music videos or whatever, but Kyle, you know, my main production partner that I work with, he's the narrative guy. So like, He's into, you know, writing the scripts and, you know, we're storyboarding and we're shot listing and all that stuff that I don't necessarily care about. Right. I, what were we talking about? No. Yeah. I'm jaded. Sure. <laughs> no, no. And the reason I asked that is if you're not jaded yet, because it's guys like you that got me into podcasting. It really is listening to your stuff. And, and it's guys like you that brought me into it. And I'm, I'm relatively new. I've been doing it for about two years. Um, but I feel the same way. I'm like, man, if you just heard my stuff and, and you tell me, Hey man, that was awesome. I, I love that you did that. I love that, uh, that person that you had on. I love that interview that you did. Cause that's what I stick to is interviews. Um, I love that about it, man. I'm so happy, but I know that after a while it's going to be like, well, I got to make some money at this. I can't just keep throwing money at it without making money. And maybe the word's not jaded, but is it, that's why I asked that question. Is it because you're relatively new to it at some point where, because I remember on the show when you used to talk about your job, yeah, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> your, your full-time job and then that, um, and now it's so great that you've broken away and you know, you can do this full-time, but I almost wonder, does that, does that wear off after a while? Because I, I just knowing myself, I feel like it's going to wear off. I think, I mean, I can talk to the podcasting side of that ad nauseum. <laughs> I got, I got very jaded in podcasting for a, a pretty good run for, I'd say a couple of years where I was really just like unhappy with the state of podcasting. So when, when outside the cinema started, it was, you know, a little over 13 years ago now at this point. And we were kind of at that forefront of the second wave of podcasts. So Adam Curry had kind of started it and that kind of, ebbed and flowed and we came along with like a bunch of other shows that were doing similar things and the shit exploded like we did un like unreal numbers from like year two to like year like five or so like we're talking like you know like millions of downloads that we could never even sniff today if we wanted to because 
podcasting ebbs and flows. It shifted. The hot thing now and has been for the number of years is celebrities doing podcasts. Mm -hmm. So I would actually pose a question to you now. How how tough is it to kind of break in to podcasting now? Because it's almost like the studio system has taken over. If you're not a name and you're not like an actor or an actress or a comedian or like you're a writer that's written a bunch of books or you're friends with so-and-so and you got this person or you're Joe Rogan and you're this, it's really difficult. To, it's like to get anywhere because you're not going to get the sponsorships that like you would have gotten 10 years ago and you're not going to get like featured on, you know, spot, uh, you know, Spotify's podcasts of the week, or here's our recommendations because it's like, well, who are you? Well, allow me to retort. I would love to answer that question. Love it. And I'll tell you, uh, you're exactly right. I get very, I won't say I get very frustrated, but I've had a couple of people on here, um, where I look at them and I've interviewed one of them twice. And he actually asked to come back and be interviewed a second time. Um, and I see that a uh, hundred people listen to that episode. And I looked that he did a podcast with a big name a week later after me. And there's 27,000 downloads in a day. And I'm yep. like, I did the exact same. And maybe even, uh, I don't want to sound like conceited about it, but maybe even a better interview if they asked to come back and be interviewed a second time. Um, For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and when they push it, um, it, it, that gets very frustrating. Cause I'm like, wow, you know, I, I need, I need out there. I know that I'm doing good stuff. I know that I'm, I'm getting who I want and it's, you're exactly right. You'll call people and they're like, who the fuck are you? And you're like, look, I promise if you come on, it's very professional. I'm small. I don't have a ton of money, but uh, I promise you it'll, it'll look professional. It'll sound professional. I put every, you know, heart and soul into it. Just trust me on it. And you'll get ones that do. They'll come on and, and, and they'll be very happy with the end product and everything, but you'll get a lot that will just blow you off because oh, yeah. you're, yeah. you're not a Joe Rogan. You're not this. And, and, and it always comes back. I, I believe that it will always go full circle that once you break into it and you get a foothold, you're going to hold a foothold. But until then, man, it's, it, it, it can be difficult. I, I, you know, I work, I uh, have a full-time career and everything and, I spend a lot of nights until one o'clock in the morning writing and emailing and editing. I mean, you know how it goes and oh, yeah. sometimes it's, it feels very underappreciated. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've gotten over it now. Like I've, I, I came to, I, I came to the realization a couple of years ago now that if I'm going to do OTC and continue to do OTC, it, I have to do it because I, because I love it. It's not, we have a Patreon and we bring some money in from the Patreon, but it ain't, it, it ain't, ain't me, ain't paying my bills. It ain't making me rich. It ain't right. even, it ain't even filling the cup if you know what I mean. But right. you know, we have a smaller, but dedicated listening base now. And I know and that I those people, that. and I know that people appreciate that. It's like, yeah, maybe like, you know, in our third year, we were able to pull, pull down, you know, like 6 million downloads or whatever it was, but it was like, how many of those people actually like, invested into the into the into the show like we were on different networks that it would play or what and stuff and it's like yeah it's playing somewhere and it counts as a download but does it really mean anything i'm much happier with having that dead that small dedicated group that listen every week than you know the echo chamber of you know 
everybody that's just looking to kind of take you down at the first drop because that's why podcasting got nasty there for a while in the in the independent podcasting world uh because people everyone was looking for a reason to take somebody else down and i just i i don't i don't have time <laughs> i don't have time to deal to deal with that and like you should it's like it's just stupid right yeah. so i i do it because i love it still and you know i still get frustrated with like i don't do a lot of interviews on the show we were doing some live shows for a little while during the pandemic and getting some people to come on but they were mostly just people i was friends with or you know people that i had had you know acquaintances with but i had one youtube guy uh who shall remain nameless um that i was trying to book on the show because we talk a lot of music and he does these music youtube episodes of stuff that i really enjoy and i reached out to him and was like hey uh you know i do this podcast we've been doing it for a long time and uh i think you could come on and we could have a really good conversation about a number of different things and he was like okay what well what are your numbers <laughs> and i was like all right i'm like we've been around i'm like we've been around for 13 years you know this is our average numbers we go from this to this to this you know in this thing and it's like and he was like yeah i i just i don't i don't think it's really going to do enough for me so i think i'm going to pass I mean, at least he got back to me, which was nice because that doesn't always happen. True. But I was just kind of like, all right, man, cool. <laughs> but then I realized if I had reached out to this guy and was like, hey, my name's Bill Fulkerson. I'm an award-winning award -winning documentary filmmaker, and I'm working on this new documentary on uh, on whatever, you know. Uh, we'd love to sit down and talk to you, potentially do an interview for the documentary and see if you would be interested. You know, that dude would get back to me in like a second, Yep. but like my podcast isn't important enough, but like, it's like, it's just, it's all so weird how it, it kind of like, it's a weird space right now. Yeah. And I don't want, and the thing is, it's like, I'm not like, if you listen to OTC, like I talk, I talk a big game and I'm, that's, I'm not really like that. Like in everyday life, like it's not that I, I don't do a character, but like, I, you know, puff up my chest and be like, oh, you know, we won, you know, I'm an award-winning filmmaker. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm poking myself down with this though. <laughs> like, this is just like, right. and we're all in the same same place and we're all trying to, you know, get our little piece of the pie. And I don't even necessarily mean monetarily. I just mean like, I'll try to carve out a little thing. And I think people kind of forget that like, you need to work together. And a lot of like, like, you know, coming on and doing the, and come doing this interview with you, it's like, yeah, I want to do that. Why wouldn't I want to do that? If I can make that happen, I absolutely want to do that. Right. So, why, why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to promote your stuff to like, even if your listenership was only like five people, like those are five people that might, that have maybe never heard of me or have never heard of my movie. have never heard of the podcast. have never heard of right. your podcast or, you know, the people you've talked to, like, why wouldn't you want to introduce yourself to those people if you can make it work? You know, I get people don't have time, you know, like sometimes schedules don't work. Absolutely. That's fine. That's fine. But like, why wouldn't you want to still promote yourself? Like, that's the idea of like, the idea of celebrity is like the most bizarre thing to me of like, you have fans, but you don't want to take the time to talk to them or share information with them. Well, I, I don't know. It's bizarre. No, no, no. And, and, and I know what you're saying. And, and that's why the interviews that I try and do, I try and tell people's stories. Like anyone that has a great story is who I want to talk to, whether that be a filmmaker, whether it be a soldier, whether it be a police officer, whether it be a firefighter, whoever it may be that has a story that people haven't heard. That's what I want to do on, on my show. And so that's the love that I get from it is, is people uh, kind of sharing a part of them on the show, talking about what they like to talk about. 
that's what I love the most about it. And like I said, you know, two years, I'm, I'm relatively new, but I absolutely fell in love with it. I love interviewing people. I love reading about people and watching their movies and, and talking to the, what their creative process was to it and stuff like that. That's what's fun to me. The numbers yeah. will come. If you love it, the numbers will come. Right. And it's, it's, and it's also too, like, you always have to kind of like figure out where you want to be. Like, are you doing it for the right reasons? Like you, you're doing it for the right reasons because these are things you enjoy. Like you didn't sit down behind the mic and be like, all right, what is my road to a hundred thousand listeners? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you like, cause then you're doing it. You're chasing, you're chasing, you're chasing numbers that aren't, that aren't real anyway. It's like, sure. Maybe you get a hundred thousand, you can get a hundred thousand downloads, but like, they're just a number. You don't know these people. Like they're not like not giving you money, but like, if you can get like, 50,000 listeners that are also going to pony up on a Patreon or like buy t-shirts or like give like a reason then like, okay, well that's cool because people are invested in it. I would much rather have 500 invested listeners than a hundred thousand people that like, just don't care that are just like your background noise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you. So Let's talk about your film for a few minutes. We've been talking about it the whole way through, but let's talk about it. That um, sucks. No, it's it's uh it's really great, and it brought up some ones that that uh, that I haven't seen that I would like to see. Um, that's where I got the idea for uh, Ten to Midnight, and then I went and found it, and I was like, "Wow, this is a great Charles Bronson movie." Actually, it's probably one of my favorites now of Charles Bronson. Also, one of my favorite OTC reviews we've ever done was 10 to Midnight. I don't remember when we reviewed it. It was a long time ago now, but we did a review of that. And it's one of the best, best reviews we've ever done. Yeah, it, it, it is a great. I could have done without the nude killer for a lot of the film. For I think that adds, that adds I, to it, though, man. I think roughly 95% of the film, uh, <laughs> I felt like that guy couldn't wait to take his clothes off in that movie. He was just um, so angry all the time about being naked too. And he's then he's, uh, in the, he's in the shower. He's like pounding on the shower. And he's like, I was like, what is happening right now? Well, the daughter I figured out was, uh, the girl from Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. 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 She was, she's been in, she was actually in a, a bunch of stuff around that time period. Yeah. So, I mean, I loved it. Your film though goes into it and I love how it explains it. It's not just this kind of film and it's not just this and it's not just this. It's everything that you can think of. So for me, it's more of a nostalgic walk through your documentary. And that's what I like about it. You talk about the cover art, which brings up favorite cover art from this era. Man, that's a tough one. Um, I, I got one right off the top chopping mall with the robot hand that, that, I'll never forget. I saw that as a kid. I never saw the movie as a kid. I saw yep, yep. The, the cover art and I loved it. And then I saw it for the first time. I'm like, that fucking art doesn't have anything to do with this movie. Yep. Um, one of my favorite uh, slasher movies that's just so ridiculous is Sleepaway Camp 2. That's and it's what the got backpack? This- that's the backpack with the yep. Freddy glove and the Jason mask and this hot chick, like walking with like the backpack chicks, not in the movie. It's not Freddy. It's not Jason. There's like a little, a little scene in there where they kind of pay like homage to it, where they dress up and stuff. But like, it's just like actress that has nothing to do with it. And that's one that I always remember. The, I spit on your grave artwork is one of my favorites. Uh, again, super misleading. Uh, I, have a I love that you like one. Maniac. 
love the well, yeah, love the maniac. <laughs> obviously, our cover art when we when our poster art, we were figuring out what we we're gonna do. And Joel Robinson, uh, whose uh, website artpusher.net, uh, he does a lot of the covers for Scream Factory and uh, a lot of those like boutique labels. Yeah. Those are great so, labels now, though. They do. Oh, some man. Great Green Factory is great. Arrow is great. Vinegar Syndrome. The dudes at Brand, my buddy Brandon that works over at Vinegar Syndrome. If you want to get into some real smut of like stuff, Vinegar Syndrome is the place to go. Uh, but Joel, yeah, we reached out to Joel because uh, I'd met him a couple of times. So I was like, hey, man, I'm like, uh, so we got this doc. It's an homage to like different cult movies and stuff. And I really think that if we could repurpose the maniac cover art, uh we could do something really cool and he bit on that and was like yeah let's let's do that that's what that's absolutely one of my all-time favorites um i also really like the cover art to uh a lot of uh different black exploitation ones three the hard way is one of my favorites which has got jim brown fred williamson and uh <laughs> jim kelly in it and it's like this like awesome like black exploitation style painting with the three of them like around at one Doing of them. karate jim kicks and stuff right yeah, yeah, Kelly's doing a karate kick, and you got Williamson and, and Brown on either side with big guns. Love which, that. that uh, which they paid that back in I'm a get you sucker. Yeah, they did. Yep. It's almost the same. Yeah, almost the same thing. Uh, I love the classic Halloween two, which is the the um, the jack o' lantern with like the skull face in it. That's one of my favorites. Uh, man, I love a lot of that, like the old like the '70s like painted stuff. Uh, what about like? Do like, um, uh, you remember the video Dead? or uh dungeon you remember Master? the video dead yeah. yeah that was one that i had never saw and that you know that reminds me of demon wind the vhs box are for demon wind i've heard of that one but i've never seen it yeah it's awful don't worry about it we reviewed it on the show not worth your time um i'm just looking around the room with some of the other ones that i had the took wraith a lot of my is a good one. Oh yeah i like the wraith the wraith yeah. is good i also like some of those ones that are just super ultra like macho like uh like Schwarzenegger's commando. Yes. Where he's, that's all, a like, great he's one. all like, he's all greased up on the front or the barbarians, the two barbarian brothers. Yep. Um, oh, and creep show, uh, the, the, the classic creep show. Creep show great, yes. Awesome. Well, so I guess you yeah. don't really have a favorite. I, I will say, no. and the only reason I say chopping mall is because that one has stuck in my brain for so long. I, I said that has to be, it has to be my favorite if it's stuck that long. Yeah, I would say Maniac is one of if I had if I had to choose only one, I think Maniac would probably be the one I'd go to. All right, you ready for the the kind of last question to wrap this up? Sure. Favorite film of all time? Well, we'll do it in in steps. Favorite film okay. of all time. It used to be, believe it or not, it used to be Braveheart. It's not really anymore. Wow. Uh, I, I would not expect that answer from you. Right. Right. Uh American Werewolf in London is the is 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 probably the one that sticks out the most for me. I I I just I love I love everything about that movie. I feel like it's almost like the like the perfect line of like a little bit of comedy but also brutal horror stuff. The werewolf transformation still to this day makes John, my skin that's crawl. That's John Landis, right? John Landis, yeah. Rick David Baker Naughton. did the uh Rick Baker did special effects, right? Yep, Rick Baker did the the yeah. werewolf transformation in it. Um yeah, that's that's one of my all-time favorites that I will always always go back to. I think mine is my favorite movie of all time, I say, is Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh oh, a good one, yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I love uh the I watched it recently and 
the underwater scenes hold up so well for being so such a new technology. Um, they hold up really well. Um, the storyline holds up well. I would. I don't know though that I would ever want to see a remake. I've thought I would, but I don't know. I mean, there's been some people like you had um, Todd McFarlane that came in and kind of did his uh, creation of what Creature from the Black Lagoon would look like now. But I don't know that I would want to see that. But if I had to say a favorite movie, it'd be uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, followed quickly by A Few Good Men. I feel like Shape of Water is like the closest you could do to kind of doing a remake or reimagining a Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, in saying that, I think you would definitely have to do a Guillermo del Toro. He would have to kind of helm that. For sure. A Few Good Men is really, really good, too. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know what it is about it. I, I you know, I, it's just, I, I don't, I don't know that you can find a fault in it. I, I really don't. There's no perfect movie, but I don't know that you can really find a fault in it in, in the layout, in the look of it, in the writing of it. I, I don't know that there's, I don't it's got know incredible that, pacing too. It never, it's a long movie, but it never feels long. That was one of my things with Braveheart was despite it's, you know, three and a half hour runtime it never feels like it gets long. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely understand. Uh, okay. So favorite, uh, horror film other than, other than American werewolf. Uh, I'm a huge fan of creep show. Okay. Uh, I love anthology movies in general and I feel like creep show is the perfect example of, of an, of a horror anthology because all of the stories in it are strong. They're all, you know, they're Stephen King stories and George Romero's is in there uh, directing. So it's, you know, it's basically like superstars of the genre coming together and making their version of an EC comics, you know, movie brought to life. Uh, And if I would, if I was to choose another one that is, that's more of a kind of a standard movie, Suspiria is, is one of my, one of my favorites. I would have to say uh, Dawn or Day of the Dead. And then if I'm going to get more current, I think uh, Stephen Cognetti did a fantastic job with the Hell House trilogy. Yes. Hell, Hell House LLC is criminally underrated in terms of what they accomplished on, on and especially in the first one on a pretty, pretty tight budget. Yeah. You know, um, it's going to be a TV show now. It's going to be. A I had heard that. Yeah. yeah I, I talked to that him. Actually, in, is that in, actually getting done? Yes, it is. He it's called um, it's called the. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the town that it takes place in. Um, I'm drawn. Abaddon. Abaddon. It's, it's called the Abaddon tapes. The Abaddon okay, tapes cool. is what it's called. Uh, and he's in the middle of that right now. Another one recently. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter is huge into horror films. And uh, I showed her followed. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Antoine Lay's followed. I haven't seen. I haven't seen it yet. Um, it is I've fantastic. It it's fantastic. Uh, and I, I really like the, I, I really like found footage films because I feel like those are people once again just going, hey, I'm going to make a movie, and this is what I want to make it like, and and they do it. And so, yeah, I would have to say those. I would have to say, if we're talking about film by film standards, I would say Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. I think they're both fantastic films. If we're talking found footage, I always I go back to Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, can't because, do it. I can't do it. Yeah, it's, no, you know what? Hey, it's a rough movie. <laughs> there is absolutely no doubt uh, because of the animal stuff that goes on in it. And it's just also it's just it's just brutal. Um, but it's it's 
it's so well made and so believable as you're watching it that you're just like, yeah, these people might be dead. Like this really well, might have happened. That was a big thing when it was made. Was they thought they oh, yeah. were dead? Yeah. Um, Deodato was taken taken to court over it. He had to bring the actors and actresses to court to prove that they were alive, and then they threw the case out. But um, it's yeah, it's not an easy film to watch. Luckily, Grindhouse releasing put out a Blu-ray and a DVD of it a few years ago, where you could watch it without the animal stuff in it, which makes it a little bit easier to digest, but there's still just some incredibly skin crawling stuff in yeah. that film, but I, it's so well-made and it's so effective. It just, it's so effective. So a uh, crime thriller, I would say favorite crime thriller. Uh, I, I like seven. I'm a big Fincher fan. There's a great, here we hear Bill going back to the Italian stuff. Uh, trying to think of the name of it. It's got Franco Nero in it. Ah, I can't mm-hmm. think of it. The Italian police, you flick. I'm going to have to look it up. Hold on. Okay. Because it's, it's got like a crazy Italian name. I'm going to have to agree with you on seven. Seven's killer, man. You know, they're comparing. I was telling you about the little things. Uh, people yep. are, are trying to compare seven to it. They are. Is it, I, I haven't. I mean, it, it, I haven't watched it yet. Um, they're sorely missing the mark on it. Really? Uh, the trailers. I think look, I, I'm here's the thing. I think Jared Leto is possibly one of those like most overrated like actors that's kind of going. And I think that guy's bought into his own, his own hype because he gets a lot of love from people. Uh, and I'm just, I I'm, I'm kind of turned off by him in general now. How about, how do you feel about Rami Malek? Who Denzel's in that too, right? Yes. And I'm glad okay. he is because he makes it a lot better. Okay. I, I mean, I want to check it out. I think. Well, a lot of people are comparing it. It's the lighting, the locations, and I felt like it was very lazy. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't a bad movie, but it was very lazy riding, trying to follow Seven. Oh, Rome Armed with Teeth. Okay. It wasn't Nero. It was Thomas Millian. It's a great Italian police procedural thriller drama uh, that's like probably the best um, example of like an Italian police thriller. I think another one, a Korean one would be, uh, I saw the devil. Oh my God. We reviewed that. I, so we, that was my number one for films that we, re, that we reviewed last year. Uh, that was my number one film the year it came out. Also, I think that film as tough as it is to watch, cause it is very violent and it is very dark, Excellent and, movie, but it is so well put together the way it's shot, the way it's written, the direction, the acting is on another level. Mm-hmm. I think some of the best stuff, some of the, the the best films of the last 15, 20 years have come out of Korea. I absolutely you know, agree with you. Old boy. Uh, I mean, Parasite from last year won Best Picture for Crying Out Loud. That Did not like, like Parasite, though. Did you not like it, but you can appreciate it and understand like that it's no. good. You just got into it. Or did you not like it? Like I did not like it. Interesting. And, and and I love Korean films. Uh The Man from Nowhere, I Saw the Devil. Um there's a there's quite a few of them that I I really like cuz I think um even if you look at that Netflix series um that's the Korean uh zombie. It's like a feudal zombie uh kingdom. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Right. But well the best par- the best zombie movie Man- of the last 15 years came out of Korea, Trained Busan. Well, they're making the, the the second one now? Prequel. Or no, not a prequel. It's a sequel. It's already out. It's not very good. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are they aren't they 
always like that. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, just Parasite. I I uh, I didn't care for it like at all. Okay. I tried to watch it and I'm like, nah. I just uh, I don't know what it was. I just didn't like it. It's definitely. I mean, it's different than his other stuff. But um, no, I really enjoyed it. But I can see I can see why somebody wouldn't like it. Well, and I. I I think that's one of those hype things again, where you start believing your own hype and you kind of, you, you, you phone some of it in. See, I don't think any of it was phoned in, but I mean, he's, I mean, he's, uh, what's his name? Bong, Bong Joon, Bong Joon Hoi. Yeah. Uh, No, uh, 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 Bong, I want to say Bong Joon Hong, I think. That sounds close enough. Um, mild racism there, but that's all right. Um, (laughs) Let's uh, let me look it up. We get it. We can't. We can't drop his name and then not and then not and then not say his name properly. I'm terrible with names. So um, yeah, he. Uh, I'm trying to think of what it is. Uh, but but once I, well, again, I mean, I think I think the idea of the class structure within Korea is a very tough thing for us as Americans to really kind of understand. Bong join Bong join Hoi. Okay. But I, I think it comes through in all their stuff, <laughs> the the class system. It came through in Kingdom. It comes through in I Saw the Devil. All that stuff comes because if you look at those characters, um, you like I Saw the Devil. It's the chief's daughter and her husband who's Secret Service, who's very high up in the government. And then this guy is kind of the dregs. And then if you watch, the film goes from, way up here in socialites all the way down and it ends in I don't want to say the slums but pretty close to the slums is how the film ends. Yep. Well, did you see Snowpiercer? Didn't care for it either. Okay, so that's cuz that that's, that's the same director. Right. And it's also again very heavily steeped in the class system. Well, and uh, and you know everyone said Chris Evans it's the best thing he's done since Captain America and stuff and I'm like, no. Well, what else has he done? <laughs> like, right, but I was like, man, no. It's not it felt it felt very uh poor man's Hunger Games. <laughs> okay. Okay. I love I I love Snowpiercer. Okay. I think Snowpiercer excellent. Um but I also love Parasite. So uh but I can understand why people wouldn't be into those movies. Like there's, there's some, I mean, it's like, there's some movies where you're just like, I mean, everybody liked Avengers Endgame. <laughs> like, like everyone should like, and everyone like the Mandalorian, like everyone should like the Mandalorian. If you don't like star Wars, then yeah. Okay. I can understand not like, but like if you're even remotely into star Wars, or have interest in it and you watch the Mandalorian Mandalorian and don't like it, that doesn't make sense to me, but something like Parasite or Snowpiercer, I can understand as much as I love and appreciate it. I can understand why somebody wouldn't like it. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was about it. Cause I'm not, I, I'm not bothered by like subtitles, anything like that. I, it doesn't bother me at all to watch something like that. Uh, you are right about the Mandalorian that and the clone wars uh, and coming up the bad batches, the best star Wars stories there are out there. Yes, for sure. So I nerded out for a minute. So Bill, <laughs> what do you want to promote? Yo. Let's go. Uh, watch if you haven't seen Survival of the Film Freeze. Watch it. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's available on Tubi. Uh, pretty much kind of anywhere that you can get it. But you can watch it for free on Tubi. Uh, and if you have Prime, you can watch it for free on Prime. Uh, we also have a new uh, short that we put out on Prime called Safer Spaces. 
uh, a film about Shauna Potter. It is a 20 minute short music documentary about uh, Shauna Potter, who's the lead singer of the feminist punk rock band War on Women. Uh, it kind of goes through her history a little bit and a little bit about the band and their music and the, kind of their stance. Uh, I think it's an important, important film for kind of what's going on right now uh, in the world, whether you support whoever you support. I feel like it's the type of thing where, you know, take a look at it. It's uh, it's an interesting and they're a kick ass band, too, which always helps. Uh, and then outside the cinema, we record episodes weekly. Uh, we just entered our 14. We just started our 14th year uh, and it is available at outside the cinema.com or anywhere you get you get podcasts. I think the only place we're not currently available is Spotify. Uh, and that's just on me for not setting it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I'll, I'll explain the, the outside the cinema sign down here. Those, those days are wrong, but I really love, this is one of my favorite ones from you guys. So I put that one up there. It's not live on Mondays at 5 PM. That artwork's dope though. I, I forgot. I forgot yeah, that artwork. I, I just love that artwork. So I wanted to put that up there and kind of cover that area. So Bill, thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, oh, I thanks for having so me. Much. This was you, a lot of fun. Yeah, you had a, a fantastic documentary. I think you have a huge future ahead of you, uh, especially in the film industry. You have so much knowledge. I could talk to you for hours about it. So I appreciate you coming by. Anything you need. Guys, go check out this film. Check out the podcast outside the cinema. Check out the movie Survival of the Film Freaks. That's going to be it for the show this week. I'm DJ. That's Bill. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys later. Bye.